Give Me Some Credit, Episode 1, Free Will and Moral Responsibility with Dr. Matthew Talbert. Welcome to Give Me Some Credit. I'm Todd Schull, and this is a new podcast that I've created that's going to feature long-form interviews with college professors from across the country who specialize in topics that uh, interest me and interest you, the listener. I'll be taking suggestions from you uh, about the subjects that we'll explore together on future episodes. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, please email me at toddshoal at gmail.com. That's T-O-D-D-S-C-H-O-L-L at gmail.com. So for my first episode, I reached out to a high school friend and college roommate, Dr. Matthew Talbert. Matt is the chair of the philosophy department at West Virginia University. He's an expert on topics of free will, ethics, and moral psychology. Conversations with him are always illuminating and interesting and um, and certainly, our notions of free will have profound Im- implications on how we view moral behavior, uh, the criminal justice system, punishing students, um, holding other people accountable for what we perceive to be their transgressions. It's a, it's a very, very interesting and important subject um, that really impacts all of society. Um, in this episode, Matt's going to help us define what is free will, determinism, and compatibilism. He also articulates what makes a person blameworthy and differentiates blameworthiness with from um, retributive justice. So I guess that's enough for the intro. Let's talk with Dr. Matthew Talbert. And I'm here with Dr. Matt Talbert, and Dr. Talbert is... Not only a good friend of mine, but also the, um, the chair of the Department of Philosophy at West Virginia University. And I want to welcome you to the podcast. By the way, uh, Matt, the name of the podcast I've decided is, is Give Me Some Credit. Um, I looked in some, some other names, but they're already taken. So that's the best I can come up with. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Uh, this is uh, my friend Matt is uh, is a uh, philosophy professor, and um, he's I I, I don't want to say this wrong, but you definitely specialize in the in the concepts of free will and moral responsibility. I know you have a book um, dedicated to that subject, and what I'd like to do is start off and just sort of talk about um, just sort of define some terms for the listeners of of what is free will, what is determinism. And sort of your take on um, on those subjects and whether or not ultimately we are responsible for the choices that we make. Sure. Um, the first thing I would say is that occasionally in the popular literature, or at least in popular discussions of free will, you hear people contrast free will and determinism, and, and, and you shouldn't do that. Whether or not those two things are in conflict is the result of a conversation. That's going to be the end of an argument. You shouldn't start out the discussion by saying, well, there's free will and then there's determinism. The argument is about whether or not those two things are incompatible. And moreover, they're just, those are just different categories of things. So, so determinism is a view about the way the universe is. It's a, it's a, a theory about, uh, well, let's say the, the, the physical world, there could be other kinds of determinism, but physical determinism is a thesis about the physical world. Free will is a capacity that human beings might have. And the question is whether or not possession of that capacity is compatible with the physical world being a certain way, namely being determined. So determinism would be, or physical determinism would be the thesis that the past can only be extended into the future one way, or to put it differently, that the past, the facts about the past, together with the laws of nature, determine a unique future. So, for example, if you knew everything that there was to know about the way the world was at a particular instant, and you know everything there is to know about the laws of nature, 
if those laws are deterministic, then you can predict the future with 100% accuracy, including the actions of, uh, of human beings. And there are other kinds of determinism that people worry about, like theological determinism, uh, which has to do with uh, divine foreknowledge. So divine foreknowledge might create problems for free will. If God knows, if, all, if God has all true beliefs and all of God's beliefs are true, and he has a belief about what you're going to do in the future, then when the future rolls around, you're going to do that thing. You can't make it so that God had a false belief about what you're going to order for lunch next week or, or uh, any other action that you're going to take. But if you can't do other than the thing that God knows you're going to do, we might wonder whether or not you, you actually possess free will. But most of the contemporary discussion is about physical determinism. Again, the idea that the facts about the past, together with the laws of nature, entail that the future can only be one way. Now, is that compatible with free will or not? Part of that's going to depend on what we mean by free will. I mean, if, if, if you say, well, look, what free will is, is just the ability to extend the, fu- to extend the past into the future in more than one way. If you think that's what free will means, then clearly that's going to be, or pretty clearly, that's going to be incompatible with determinism because determinism was just the thesis that the future can only go one way given the actual past and given the laws of nature, the future can only go one way. So if we think what free will is, is just the ability to extend the actual past in multiple ways, they're going to be incompatible. But some people say, well, look, what does it mean to say, what is free will? Free will uh, means that your actions are in your control, but all that that means is that you're doing whatever it is that you want to do. So determinism could be true, and it's still the case that I act as I want to act. I act on the basis of my deliberations and on the basis of my choices. And it could even be true that if I had deliberated, deliberated otherwise, and I had had other desires and other uh, goals, then I would have acted differently. So even if determinism is true, uh, it's still the case that I would have acted differently if I had chosen to act differently. That's what's known as the conditional analysis of the ability to do otherwise. So sometimes free possession of free will gets defined in terms of possession of the ability to do otherwise. And we might think that that's exclu- excluded by determinism, but what some philosophers have argued is that all it means to say that you could have done otherwise is that if you'd wanted to do differently, then you would have. That's right. compatible with determinism. And it's called the conditional analysis because it includes that conditional statement. It says, if on the condition that you would wanted to do differently, then you would have done differently. Determinism might be true, but that conditional claim could also be true. And so if you think that the notion of the ability to do otherwise should get cashed out in those conditional terms, then you would think that free will is compatible with determinism, or, or you might think that. So uh, like on, a, on an everyday basis, most of us go around thinking that every choice that we make um, to do good or bad, um, and I know those are subjective terms, but most of us feel like we are in total control of those choices. And um, most of us certainly hold other people accountable as though they're completely in, in, in control of the choices they make. Um, and, and obviously this has huge implications for, uh, you know, our justice system, our, you know, our school systems and how we, you know, our systems of punishment or rehabilitation and that kind of thing. What's your take on that? Like, um, so if I go out and I do something that's clearly wrong, uh, it seems to me that um, I might be more morally responsible than someone who has been brought up with, uh, say parents or an environment that that didn't give them the same type of moral instruction as 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 I've had or didn't give them the same opportunities seems like that there's uh, there's room for this sort of relativism in, in there so what what's your take on that well that's that's certainly the standard view that um, to be morally responsible is to be an appropriate target for responses like praise and blame and perhaps punishment. And a lot of people think that in order to be an appropriate target for blame for your wrongful behavior, you have to have had clear access to right behavior in that context. You need to have been the sort of person who could recognize that your behavior was wrong and control your behavior in light of that judgment 
And we might think that for you, that option, what uh, you had easier access to that option than did somebody who was raised differently. And so a lot of people have argued that uh, the position that you just articulated is in fact correct, that you would be more, I, I wouldn't say more morally responsible, I'd say blameworthy to a higher degree. Maybe you're both morally responsible, but you're more blameworthy uh, than, than the person that you contrasted yourself with. Now, I happen to think that that's not the case, or at least it's not clearly the case in the way that people think that it is. And that's because I think that we need to keep in mind the way in which all of our capacities for governing ourselves are conditioned by factors that are outside of our control. Let me back up and give you a brief argument for skepticism about moral responsibility which I think is a very interesting argument, a powerful argument. So this argument for skepticism says, it seems that nobody's ever an appropriate target for blame. Nobody's ever really morally responsible for their behavior because everything that seems to be most in our control, our decisions, the choices that we make, that's always a function of something over which we had no control. I choose to do what I do because of the judgments that I make about reasons, whether or not there's reasons in favor of some action or some other action. And I make those judgments about reasons on the basis of how things seem to me. Does, does something seem like a reason? If so, I'm going to count it in favor of acting a certain way. And if it seems like it's a reason to do something else, then I will form a judgment or a decision to act differently. But the way things seem to me isn't something that I have direct control over. Whether or not something seems to be a reason is... Uh, a function largely of luck in how I'm constituted. You are as much a product of luck as somebody who had a more unfortunate upbringing. You had good luck or what's called good moral luck and somebody else had bad moral luck. But if we think that luck tends to excuse and tends to put people beyond the reach of praise and blame, we should regard both of you as not praiseworthy or blameworthy because your behavior just as much as everybody else's is explained by things over which you had no control, ultimately. So some people argue along on that basis for thinking that we don't have ultimate responsibility for any of our actions because all of our actions are informed by how we are as a person, but you don't have control over how you are as a person. So you don't have ultimate control or ultimate responsibility over your actions. I think that's an interesting and important argument but I think when we take that on board, what we have to conclude is that the person that you described, the person with the unfortunate upbringing, is often blameworthy for their behavior. Because what makes you blameworthy for your behavior is largely the moral quality of that behavior. So if someone does bad behavior or act, acts badly, uh, they're open to blame on account of the moral significance of that behavior and not necessarily on the basis of whether or not it was reasonable to expect them to have seen their behavior as wrong. So I've heard, I've heard some people argue that um, even despite the fact that you ha say have a really bad upbringing, you just have uh, really bad examples around you, really difficult circumstances, but that um, when you act in ways that are immoral, um, like you hurt somebody else, you, you steal from somebody else, you, you kill somebody else, that that is predictive. That is that's that your your past behavior is largely predictive of future behavior, and therefore, that because it's so largely predictive of future behavior, that is why we have to hold people morally morally responsible. Is it is it beyond that, or is it just simply that that we have to hold people morally responsible because their past behavior predicts future behavior? Right. Uh, so I don't think of that as real moral responsibility. I think in that case, we may, we're acting as if somebody's morally responsible, and, but we're motivated by uh, considerations that aren't really relevant to judgments of blameworthiness. We do want to keep people off the streets. You know, we, don't, we, don't, we, uh, we, we want to keep wrongdoers from acting wrongly again, and we can incentivize better behavior through punishment, perhaps. Now, in fact, not the kind of punishment that we usually administer in this country. That kind of punishment tends to cause people to recidivate, to, to 
act badly in the future as well. But conceivably, there are ways of getting people to act better in the future. But I don't think that has much to do with moral responsibility. I mean, I think that's important from the standpoint of social policy, but that's not what I think of when I'm thinking of moral responsibility. I want to say that these, those people, so let's say that we have, imagine, you know, these are the cases that I usually think of. Imagine we have uh, somebody who's raised in a slaveholding culture. And so they think slavery is permissible. Perhaps it's reasonable for them to think slavery is permissible given the social forces that shape them. Perhaps it's unreasonable to expect them to have better moral values than they do. Are they blameworthy? Well, they're not blameworthy for being the way that they are. That's not their fault. I grant that. But are they blameworthy? Are, well, what's blameworthiness? To be blameworthy is to be an appropriate target for blaming responses, on my view. What are blaming responses? Blaming responses are moralized emotions, negative emotions, like resentment. Philosophers will often, in this context, talk about resentment. So the question of whether or not that person raised in a slaveholding culture who reasonably, let's grant, thinks that her behavior is permissible, her mistreatment of slaves is permissible. The question is, is she blameworthy? That means, is she a worthy target of blaming emotions, like resentment? And I'm going to say that she seems clearly to be an appropriate target for those responses. Think about this, and philosophers often don't do this. Think about the perspective of the victim. Is it appropriate for the victim of this slave owner to resent the treatment that they've been on the receiving end of? What does resentment say? What is, what is resent, the emotion of resentment responding to? What I argue it's responding to is the awareness that you've been treated with contempt, you've been treated with ill will, somebody has denied that you have moral standing, and all those things are what's happening in the slave case. So yeah, the slave owner is blameworthy, not because she's at fault for having her beliefs, she's blameworthy just because she has those beliefs. Are there different levels of blameworthiness, though? Like, it are so if someone grows up, obviously, in today's culture, owning a slave, certainly compared to, say, the 1700s, it's a different type of environment. Are there, are, are there, is the blameworthiness different? Is there, are there levels of it, gradations of it? That is, again, what a lot of people would want to say. And I'm not necessarily opposed to conceding that. I mean, what I'm really interested in arguing for is the, the blameworthiness of the antebellum slave owner. So I'm not, I'm not committed to saying that she's just as blameworthy as, say, a contemporary slave owner. But I do think it's important to recognize that just as for the antebellum slave owner, there are factors in place that explain why she thinks that she behaves permissibly. If we've got a contemporary slave owner who thinks that, or let's say a contemporary racist, who, who thinks that his racist views are acceptable and correct and permissible, there are going to be factors that explain why he has those views. Okay. In some sense, because you, you, what you want to say is something like, well, it's so easy for him to see that his views are wrong because so much in our cultural context speaks against having those views. Whereas the antebellum slave owner, everything spoke in favor of her having the views that she has. A lot in contemporary culture militates against those racist views so we can blame the contemporary racists for having those views. But it... it it's still got to be the case that there are factors that explain why it is that he thinks his behavior is permissible, even, even, if, if, uh, even if a lot of features of our society speak against that. There's some explanation for why he has those views, and those, that explanation isn't going to be – the causal factors that we cite in that, that story about why the contemporary racist is the way he, he is, that's not going to be his fault. It's not as if he made himself that way. Right still going to have been shaped by social forces over which he had no control. Um, these kinds of forces are ubiquitous. Think about the example of the kid a couple years ago who was, people developed the term affluenza in this context, right? So, uh, I can't remember his name now. 16-year-old, I can find my, my book and, 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 and get it for you. But a uh, 16-year-old kid, he, he takes his dad's truck. He's rich. He takes his dad's truck out. He's drinking and driving. He ends up, uh, I think he ends up killing somebody, or at least uh, seriously injuring a few people. And his parents hire wealthy lawyers, get him 
off the hook, or at least he, he gets sentenced to uh, going to California to an expensive detox facility. So he had a kind of luck as well, right? Right. But what we might say is that even though he had access to all the things in society that we think ought to make it easier for you to make good moral decisions, in fact, in his case, those things led to him being kind of a rotten kid, making bad moral decisions. Right. There's always an explanation for why somebody does what they do that uh, bottoms out causally in things that they had no control over. I just think that that's a, a, a universally true claim. It's true for people who have good upbringings. It's true for people who have bad upbringings. It's true for the person who we think had access to all the uh, privileges in society and we can expect the most from them. But when they turn out to be bad people, the explanation for that isn't that it's their fault that they're bad people. It's always the fault of things that they had no control over. And so Again, that's part of the skeptical argument for against responsibility. And, and I want to accept that argument, or at least I'm going to accept a lot of that argument and deny the conclusion. So I want to accept the premises of that argument, but not accept the conclusion. Once we wanna, do that, then it's going to be hard to make some of the distinctions that you wanted to make. I want to um, make sure that the listeners are, are learning because you've, you've kind of touched on free will and determinism. Um, there's another term that's often used, and you've, you've mentioned the word compatible a few times. There's this notion of compatibilism. Um, can, you, can, you, can you kind of uh, just yeah. share the definition so, of that? Yeah, compatibilism is just the idea, is just the claim that free will and determinism are compatible. Now, or I could say free will and or moral responsibility. So, you know, you might wonder what's the relationship between free will and moral responsibility. Some people say, look, they're just going to go together, but some people think they could come apart. And the, the question about compatibility with determinism could be raised separately. Most of the time people put them together though. So it's free will and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. That's compatibilism. Then you've got incompatibilism, which is just the view that those things are not compatible. If determinism is true, then you don't have free will or, or you don't have moral responsibility. Um, and, and, and on the incompatibilist side, so the people who say that if, if determinism is true, we don't have free will, you've got people who believe that and then say, but we do have free will, therefore determinism must be false. Those are libertarians. And then you have people who say, well, if determinism is true, you can't have free will plus determinism is true. So we don't have free will. That would be a, that's, that's, so that's a skeptical position. That's called hard determinism often. There's a view called hard incompatibilism, which is the claim that free will is incompatible with both determinism and indeterminism. That's an interesting point, uh, less, less well-known one, but a lot of people have pointed out that if indeterminism is true, there seem to be big problems with free will. Think about, and I could give you an example of that if, you, if you'd like. Sure. Motivate yeah. the position. So what, is, what would it mean for determinism to be false? Well, if determinism is false, and that means the future can go in more than one way. But what is it that's going to decide which way the future goes? It's not clear that it can be the agent that decides this. So here's a famous argument for, for, for that, that, that conclusion. And I'm, I'm, I won't cite the authors. I'll just give a version of it. But uh, suppose that, well, okay, so this is Peter Van Inwagen's rollback argument, or sometimes it's called the rewind argument. And he says, imagine that there's this thief, and the thief is considering stealing the money from the poor box in the church. So he's, in the, he's broken in the church. He's in the church. He could steal the money, or he could not steal the money. Uh, he thinks about his dying mother and how he told his dying mother that he's going to be honest. And he has a desire to keep that promise. And he has the belief that the way to keep that promise about being honest is to not steal the money. So he's got, he's got the desire and he's got the belief. And suppose that that desire, all the facts about his desires and his belief, that's all that's relevant to whether or not he's going to choose to steal the money from the poor box. All those psychological factors, characterological factors, that's all that's relevant to the decision that he's about to make. Suppose that he refrains, he doesn't steal on the basis of his desire and his belief. If, 
indeterminism is true, then God could roll back. So that's why it's called the rollback or the rewind argument. God could roll back time to the moment right before he made the decision. Nothing changes about the past. Keep his desires and his beliefs, his characterological features, everything that could possibly be relevant to whether or not he's going to make the decision one way or the other, keep that all fixed, and God lets time roll forward again. Now not even God can predict what's going to happen because indeterminism is true. We can take the past exactly the way it was and get multiple futures from it. But now it looks like all that stuff that the first time around we referenced to explain the thief's decision to refrain, we talked about his desires and his beliefs, his character, psychological states, all that stuff, it also looks like that was compatible with him doing something else instead. So all the stuff that seemed relevant to his choice isn't making the deciding factor about the choice that he makes. So what is? It looks like nothing is. Or some people say it looks, well, I don't, using the term random in this context isn't exactly fair, but I'll I'll just go ahead and use it. It looks like there's there's some randomness that's playing a role here, or at the very least, what's playing the role is not the stuff that seems to matter for moral responsibility. That is whether or not you're acting in character, whether or not you're doing what you want to do, et cetera. So inserting indeterminism, it's not clear how that makes an agent more responsible for their behavior or gives them more control over their behavior. So it's almost like you're going back in time and rolling the dice again, and you're still rolling the dice, but you're just, you're coming out with a different outcome. Is that what? Right. So simplifying that. Yeah, well, something like that is right. And the rolling the dice metaphor is is apt, I think, in this case. Um, if determinism is if indeterminism is true, if determinism is false, then everything about us could be exactly the same, and yet it's possible that we could make two different choices. Right. And and then it looks like it's not all that stuff about us that's making the choice occur, the choice that actually occurs occur. What is it? Um, well, I don't know. It just, it, it would just be the case that somewhere in the causal process, there was a bit of indeterminism. So there was a bit of probability that things would go one way or another way, but it's not as if, I think what people want is they want this. They want it to be the case that the future could go more than one way. You really could do this action or you could do that action. Right. So it's not, but somehow you make the choice about which way the determine which way the future is going to go. But it's not clear how you get to make that choice unless that was somehow deterministic. Unless the facts about your character determined you to make one choice or another. Now yeah. there 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 are there are accounts that try to explain what's happening here. Accounts of what's called agent causation, um, but uh, ju- I would just say that I don't find those very compelling. Nope. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we kind of touched on this the last time we were together talking about um, this sort of uh, illusion of this sort of subjective sense of self. And this is kind of gets into another part of this is, is there a self there, an individual subjective self to make this decision in the first place, to make these moral decisions? <clears throat> well, I mean, so let's say that there is that self is still making the decision on the basis of assessments of reasons. Do we think, do you think of that? So so I mentioned agent causation a moment ago. Typically, at least a lot of philosophers would say, we think of causation. So one thing causing another in terms of a relation, we think of causation as a relationship between events. One event occurs that causes another event. I, what caused the event of the cup breaking on the floor? The event of me releasing it from my hand. What caused the event of me making this choice? The event of certain reasons occurring to me. What caused certain reasons to occur to me? That was some prior event. Once we're telling that sort of story where human decision-making and human action is just part of the event causal sequence, if it's just part of the world, the naturalistic event calls a world where every event is explained by some prior event. That's where a lot of people think, ah, that's creating trouble with free will. Regardless of whether or not we're talking about determinism or not, if human behavior gets explained in the way that everything else in the world gets explained, some people have trouble with that. So some people say, nope, there must be an agent. And the agent has this power of causing itself to act, causing actions without being caused to do that at all. So now we don't have to explain my decision in terms of reasons or anything like that. It was just a brute exercise of my agent causal power. Um, 
The problem with that is that it's hard to see how that kind of causal power fits in with the rest of the world, which seems to be governed by on event causal principles. Right. We've, I've, I've mentioned to you that I've um, listened to um, Sam Harris, who's written a book about free will. And I think you kind of had some uh, frustration over the idea that I hadn't read your book yet, but um, he had had a really interesting podcast where he interviewed um, Dan Dennett. Can you kind of talk about, because there's going to be some people, maybe like two people who listen to this, (laughs) who, who actually know who I'm talking about when it, uh, who actually, first of all, listen to this podcast in the first place. And then second of all, care enough to know sort of Sam Harris's perspective on free will versus what Dan Dennett kind of argues. Can you talk about why you feel like Sam Harris kind of has it wrong and Dan Dennett, Daniel Dennett has it right? Well, okay. And let's, so I'm not sure if you recall, but I, I said that I hadn't read Harris's book um, and I did listen. He sent me a link to the podcast and yeah. I listened to it, but I, but I don't recall exactly what I thought. Um, I mean, I think that Dennett is a, is a compatibilist of a certain sort. He thinks that talking about moral responsibility is compatible with determinism, and he thinks that for a few reasons. And I th- I, as I recall, Harris thought that we couldn't talk about free will at all and moral responsibility, so he was more of a skeptic. Yeah. But and, and I remember and thinking that... His that, book that, is that, called The Illusion of Free Will. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. Okay. So what would you, I mean, just knowing that that's the topic, yeah. um, is free, is free will an illusion or is there, is it more nuanced than that? Yeah. Um, I'm happy myself. I'm happy to dispense with free will. Um, I, what I'm interested in is moral responsibility. So, and I'm willing to say that look, there's, if determinism is true or something very like determinism. So Determinism might be false because at the quantum level, whether or not a radioactive piece of uranium is going to emit an electron at a particular moment in time, that might not be deterministic. There might be indeterminism there. But at the medium, for medium size, well, medium and large scale objects, you know, like us, our decisions might be entirely deterministic. Even if at the quantum scales, there's some indeterminism, that doesn't mean that we're not deterministic or we're, we, that, that, that our decisions are deterministic. So anyway, I'm willing to say that determinism excludes free will, but moral responsibility is independent of whether or not we have free will. And that's what I'm really interested in. If, if you think that um, clearly determinism makes it so that you can't extend the past in multiple ways, some people have argued, well, that's not what free will is. Free will is something else. But I'm willing to agree with the incompatibilist and say, yeah, that's probably what free will is. It is the ability to extend the past in multiple ways. And if determinism is true, we don't do that. But I still think we're morally responsible because I think of moral responsibility as a social phenomenon, largely. It's a social practice. What it is to be morally responsible is to be as I said earlier, an appropriate target for praise and blame. And that's, that's going to be true as long as we control our actions in a way that is compatible with determinism. We control our actions in the sense that we, we uh, make judgments and we act in conformity with our judgments. If our actions express our judgments, if my actions express contempt for you, it make for ill will, as it's often put, then it's appropriate for you to hold me responsible for that behavior, for you to blame me, for you to respond with a set of emotions that are triggered by your awareness that I treated you contemptuously. Then how do, how do we get to, like, so let's say I, I, I agree with you, and uh, what, how do we determine then what is, what is moral behavior and what is immoral behavior? Well, if there are part of what we'll want, part of what's going to govern our responses here is just our, it's just agreement. So think back to the slave owner and the, and the slave. If we believe that the slave owner has been, that the slave has been treated impermissibly, then we should believe that that blame is apt 
on the, on the slave's part. But on the other hand, if we were racist, we would agree with the slave owner. And then we wouldn't think blame was appropriate. So we can get, uh, we can have a theory about what's, um, what to do in these cases of disagreement, or we can at least handle disagreement. We just say, look, whether or not you agree or disagree about moral principles is going to determine whether or not you think blame's acceptable in a certain case. What makes it really true that the slave owner is blameworthy are going to be moral facts. They're going to be, if, if there are facts about what's permissible and impermissible, that ultimately is going to determine whether or not somebody's blameworthy. And I've heard some people use this as an argument for the existence of God or the existence of something that's sort of eternal and timeless in terms of if there are, if there are truly true moral principles yeah. or immoral principles that, that there must be something, there must be some type of entity that creates that standard. Um, yeah. How would well, you feel about that? Yeah. I, so, you know, the, a view along that line is, is often called di- divine command theory. So this is a theory about what makes, what makes uh, moral claims true or false. Maybe, maybe a true, maybe, what makes something wrong is just the fact that God has prohibited it. Uh, and what makes something permissible is that God has, has allowed it. But I think that that, that view's got problems. You know, Plato uh, in one of his di- the, the dialogue, the Euthyphro comes up with this uh, dilemma. Uh, so it's called the Euthyphro problem uh, after a character in the dialogue by the same name. And it goes, some, it's basically just this, look, if is something wrong because God says it is, or does God say it's wrong because it is? Now, if it's the second one, God says it's wrong because it is, then there's some kind of independent standard. It's just not God's beliefs that make something wrong. There's some independent standard for determining what's right and what's wrong, and maybe we can uncover that. On the other hand, if we want to say, well, look, God, just because God says it's wrong, then it is. Well, it doesn't seem that moral wrongness is identical with what God says. I mean, what if God says that... um, who gets sac? Who who was the person who's supposed to say, Abraham's supposed to sacrifice Isaac? Right. Now, God says it's permissible for you to sacrifice your son. Does that make it permissible? That that seems that seems odd. It seems like I can imagine cases in which God says something is permissible, and yet that thing wouldn't be permissible. So it seems like there is this external this standard that's external to God. Um, but but then we need to uncover that. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is well, let's say let's just say there's it's not god but i mean what is that standard where does that standard come from is that just something that's you know we evolved to develop is that you know because it's because it it it's, a, it's more of a, like an evolutionary impulse to for things that help us survive as a species or is it is there something beyond just this sort of natural impulse evolutionary impulse that um that is a standard for morality? And if so, where does that come from? Yeah, so some people have tried to make that claim. Um, so some people give a kind of evolutionary account. And they say, well, look, what, it, what, what um, makes something right or wrong is the degree to which it uh, promotes, let's say, human flourishing. Or um, So there's going to be, and, and that's, a, that, that's an idea that comes from virtue ethics, goes back to Aristotle, uh, but some people, contemporary people, have tried to give an account along those lines in evolutionary terms. Uh, what, what, kinds of, what kinds of things, what kinds of actions, what action types help us function as a group? What helps us function as a species? Maybe those are the kinds of things that will tell us whether or not something's right or wrong. But it's not clear to me that that's objective enough. That doesn't sound like what people mean when they say, something is really, truly, genuinely, ultimately, absolutely right and wrong. Right. Talking about evolution doesn't seem like it's going to give you that result. But on the other hand, it's hard to know what would. I mean, if even the beliefs that God's beliefs about morality don't necessarily give you this absolute moral standard, it's hard to know what would. Some people, I mean, like G.E. Moore in the beginning of the last century and at the end of the 19th century, talked about non, he just thought there were non-natural moral facts and we had an intu- we could in- we had a, a faculty of moral intuition and we could grasp them that's it's really hard to know what that's like what are these non natural facts other people try to give this naturalistic account but you know, maybe it involves reference to evolution and 
human social practices, but then it's hard to see how it could be objective enough. So I think, you know, I don't, I don't think too much about this issue, or at least not seriously. It's not something that I do research on. But my suspicion is that our emotions play a lot in our judgments about what's right and what's wrong. Um, and it doesn't really, there's not, not too much more objective to it. I mean, that right and wrong are not absolute. We do what we, uh, right and wrong are not absolute, but there are some things that I cannot do. And it's not, it's not that I can't do them in the sense that they're absolutely wrong. It's just I can't bring myself to do them. Like, for instance, torture. You know, I, could, I might think that it actually would be permissible to torture somebody, but I still couldn't bring myself to do it. I have just have an aversion, and that's an aversion that's been inculcated in me by my, my upbringing. So I think, I think that moral motivation comes from these aversions that we have. And they can be really strong even without being absolute. So I think we take morality seriously, but we take it seriously because we happen to be beings for whom it's really easy to take rules seriously. And, and, and we take them, we come to want to be what we think of as a moral person. Like it's very important for me to think of myself that way. And that's going to constrain my actions. It's also important for me that other people view me that way. And that's going to constrain my actions. So we get a lot of moral constraint without having to talk about morality as something that's totally absolute. It doesn't have to be absolute for it to have a tremendous motivational force for us. So I think that's probably the story with morality. And then the story with blameworthiness is just, well, look, we make our judgments about blameworthiness on the basis of whether or not we think somebody has been treated contemptuously or not. Do I think that she has a claim against being treated that way? If I do, I'm going to say she's got reason to blame. Now, is it really true that she was treated contemptuously? Is it really true that the guy had a reason not to treat her that way? I don't know, but it seems to me, I mean, that's how I feel. I'm really committed to the view that her objection to that form of treatment is legitimate. And, and, and it doesn't, but I don't think that that's an absolute claim about the fabric of reality. You know, I know the morality isn't gonna, doesn't have that kind of status. We, um, you uh, have written a book um, on, on these subjects and I, I definitely don't want to wrap this up until you have a chance to sort of talk about your book, the, the title of your book and, and sort of the, the, the uh, it, just give a kind of a synopsis of it and also where people can pick it up. So, Let's um, take a moment to do that. Um, talk about the, your book and where people can get it. Uh, so uh, my 2016 book is called Moral Responsibility, an introduction, and it's part of Polity. Polity is a UK press, and they uh, have a series called Key Concepts in Philosophy. So it's the book on moral responsibility in that Key Concepts series. And you can buy it you know, anywhere. You can buy it on Amazon most easily. I have another book that's going to come out hopefully this year, uh, co-authored with Jessica Wolfendale on uh, war crimes. And that's called, uh, it's going to be called War Crimes, Causes, Excuses, and Blame. And so that's uh, about the moral psychology of war crimes and how war crimes are brought about, what causes war crimes, the way that military training might play a role in the commission of war crimes and uh, the, the, the moral responsibility status of people who commit them, including, for instance, child soldiers, which brings up a lot of the issues that we've been talking about. Issues about bad moral luck. And, how, and, and so people can get it on Amazon. That one's not out yet, but it will oh, be. Oh, that, one, that one's not, but it will be. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention to you is, um, we, and we kind of touched on this the last time we were together, is this show, The Good Place. And uh, there's that character, Chidi, who, and, and, and I love the idea. I love the fact that um, this sort of mainstream television program is getting into these philosophical issues. Um, one, you know, they bring up that, that trolley thing, which I, I think was a really interesting um, mm -hmm. uh, thing to bring up in a, tel <laughs> in a sitcom. Um, but I, I want to kind of talk about how all of this, because a lot of times people talk about philosophy, free will, and it's very, um, it's, it's just, it, it remains a philosophical discussion rather than us really kind of considering the implications of, working all of this out in terms of 
how do we punish people? How do, you know, what are the roles of prisons? What are the roles of like the death penalty and other uh, forms of punishment for what we consider to be crimes? When you, when you look at the American system of justice and our prison system and um, even the school systems, um, how we uh, punish students and that kind of thing, um, your view, you, you, you're so immersed in this. How, how would you say, how is your view of all this compatible with what you're seeing in terms of our system of justice and how is it incompatible? Well, you know, to the degree that people know about my work or other philosophers know about my work, I'm, I'm regarded as somebody who takes a pretty permissive attitude towards blame. So I, I, I tend to see a lot more people as blameworthy than they do. So I'm, I'm more willing to say that child soldiers could be blameworthy. People raised by slaveholders could be blameworthy than, than a lot of my colleagues are. But uh, I don't think that tells us much about punishment. I mean, I think that tells us about what emotional responses are appropriate, but I don't think that tells us much about punishment. Uh, and I think that even if it did tell us some, even if I thought that those people should be punished, I wouldn't think that they should be put in, they should be incarcerated in, they, they should be introduced to the American penal system, which just seems to be, you know, a disaster from top to bottom. I mean, on the one hand, you have, are our laws enforced uh, in a colorblind way, that seems clearly not. Arrests are not enforced, uh, are, are not made in a colorblind way. The judicial system isn't colorblind. It's also not blind to the influences of money and all sorts of other factors that have no business in a justice system. And then when you actually talk about incarceration, it's just idiotic that uh, our prison system is the way it is. When you, It's just clear that uh, you prisons are more likely to make people recidivate than not. If, we, if what we want is a prison system that's going to make the world a better place and make, uh, make society better and make the people who are incarcerated better, give them a chance at being uh, better contributing members of society, well, then it would be radically different from the way it is. And what we have is, is not what any rational person would devise if they were trying to improve society. So you would make a distinction between someone being blameworthy and then what, what, are, the, what are the practical th- things that we should do with someone who is blameworthy. Yeah, or the way that society treats them. I don't, I mean, I'm not too inclined towards what's called a retributivist model of punishment. The standard distinction when you think about punishment is to say, well, we could do it on a retributivist, retributivist basis. That is, we are trying to injure this person because they are guilty. We're trying to harm them. And it's good that we right. harm them because we're guilty versus a forward-looking punishment policy which wants to, one, get somebody off the streets to keep them from injuring again, to provide an incentive for people, other people to not injure, but also hopefully to rehabilitate somebody who's been incarcerated. Those are all forward-looking dimensions of punishment. Our legal system is a combination of all those things. There's a heavy dose of retributivism. If you ever read a judge's decision about why somebody's getting punished it's a retributivism is clearly playing a role i think that our system ought to be much more sensitive to these forward-looking goals about one protecting society but two rehabilitating and introducing somebody back into society in such a way that they can they can lead a um, fruitful uh, life that contributes to public well-being and we don't have anything like that on the in, in terms of the forward-looking dimension so other than your books, what would, if, if folks are, are, if they're still listening to this, um, obviously they have somewhat of an interest in, in this subject. What are some, some sort of keystone books that you would recommend other than your own on this topic? Well, there are lots of, um, there are lots of good short introductory texts to free will. Um, fewer that focus just on moral responsibility. It's only fairly recently that the literature on moral responsibility has come to be independent to a degree of the literature on free will. There's a book on free will in the Polity Key Concepts um, series uh, that's good. Um, Blanking on the author, Joseph Kine Campbell was the author of that book. Robert Kane has a short introductory text on free will that's that's published by Oxford. Um, I'm reading Dirk Paraboom and Michael McKenna's 
text on free will right now in Rutledge, although it's a, it's a much more advanced introduction. My, my, uh, the polity series is pretty, uh, an introductory, <laughs> introductory text. Uh, whereas McKenna and Parabooms would say an advanced introduction, but Kane's free will book from Oxford is also pretty, pretty introductory. Um, Four Views on Freedom, that's a nice introduction that is a, has, again, Dirk Paraboom and Robert Kane, John Martin Fisher, and Manuel Vargas. I think that's published by uh, Oxford as well. There are collections of essays. Most of those are, are previously published essays, but occasionally the, the, uh, all, an anthology of new essays that are meant to be introductory, so you can find those. Uh, uh, let's see, Paul Russell... And um, Oshin Deary have an Oxford collection of essays like that. That's a, that's a big, heavy book, though. Gary Watson's Free Will by Oxford is a collection of really important essays. Um, that's probably a good place to start. So there's, there's a ton of stuff out there. There's no, no shortage of uh, stuff on free will and moral responsibility. And, he, and here, here's the last question, uh, Matt. Um, what we didn't get to talk about this because you hadn't seen it yet, but what did you think of uh, the last Jedi? Uh, it was fine. It's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh wait. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I guess, yeah, you guys, you guys, right. Yeah. I remember I came down when I came down there. Yeah. You know, we had just yeah. seen it and you hadn't seen it. So we we're, right. I saw it with Drew. Talking about. About. Um, yeah. So, so your opinion had not coalesced. I think I, I was still, I was still in, I had just seen it and trying to figure out what I thought about it. So yeah. I haven't given it. I, it's not something I've given a lot of thought to. It was okay. It was long. I thought it was long. It was long. <laughs> that was not, that was not great. The whole <laughs> thing was dumb. I think they could have cut that out. Yeah. But yeah. You know, it's fine. We'll save that for another, another episode, but, um, I, I thank you for being the first guest on this podcast. And, um, I'm I, I'm hoping that other other folks. So, uh, so far, I've invited four people, and you're the only person who's, who's accepted the invitation. But I'm hoping, um, hoping to find some more more people to talk about uh, uh, you know different topics that are just interesting to me, and and I, I always like learning uh, things I should have paid attention to in college, probably, and did. But um, uh, I appreciate your time, and uh, it's always good talking to you. Always interesting having these conversations with you. So thanks. Thanks, Todd. All right. Well, thanks again to Dr. Matthew Talbert for being our guest on Give Me Some Credit. I'd love to hear your feedback about this week's episode and your suggestions for future topics to cover. I'd also appreciate any support you can give to the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Todd Andrew Scholl or email me at toddscholl at gmail.com. Well, thanks for listening to Give Me Some Credit.